when I, I dealt with Elon Musk, and he would turn around and say, before they ever looked at fixing the problem, they would identify why the problem was there in the first place. Don't fix the squeaky wheel. Try to work out why you need a wheel. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with Steve Sims. Steve Sims is a biker. He's got face piercings. He's got a goatee beard, bald head. He's heavy set. He's into heavy metal. But he's pulled off some amazing parties and he's made things happen. Some pretty amazing things happen for people. In fact, we don't get into, we don't talk about this, about which one was his favorite, but I know in talking to him before the show that the event that he pulled off that he talks about uh, whilst we're talking, the dinner in Florence was the one that actually had the biggest impact on his life. He said, look, I've never been into Renaissance art. I've never been into uh, opera. I And he said, you know, this... I ended up in one of the best museums in the world for seven hours. He said that was just absolutely sensational and moved him personally deeply. So what are we talking about today? Well, Steve Steve went from being a bricklayer in London through being a stockbroker for about 72 hours in Hong Kong, became a doorman, started running parties, and has now became famous for somebody who could fix stuff for billionaires. So when billionaires wanted bragging rights at a cocktail party, the person that they would ring would be Steve. He wrote a book about how he did it. And now he coaches entrepreneurs to break through and reach heights that they didn't think were possible by focusing on, in the language of scaling up and the work that I do, core customer and understanding your core customer, getting great customer insight, and then just asking questions, having a conversation, showing up and delivering. So an amazing barnstorming conversation with Steve Sims. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm sure you will too. Hey, my name's Steve Sims, and I'm probably more well-known for spending billionaires' checkbooks to give them really interesting stories. I'm here on this podcast for your benefit from Los Angeles. Steve, um, it doesn't sound like you're a Los Angeles native. I am not, funny enough. You may have picked <laughs> up on the accent. Um, I was a Redding boy. 
Um, born in Reading and then this tiny little village just outside. Do a lot of did a lot of growing up in East London, and then basically went the opposite way around the planet, searching for how I could disrupt, conquer, and become hugely affluent. That was my goal as a young lad. Uh, well, why did why did you not think East London was a place to become? Do you Affluent. know, it, it was funny, and I've got kids now, so the American schooling system is very different to the UK one. Um, I was young in my year, so at the age of 15, I'd done all of my exams. The idea of going to college was just scoffable. There was no way it was going to happen. So at the age of 15, I finished school straight onto my dad's building site, um, and that was it. That was kind of like, well, you're here now. Um, school is something you had to do, but now you're going to work. And I remember turning up on, on the building site, and after about six months, I'm on a site with my dad, my uncle, my two cousins, and my granddad, who was in his 80s. And I thought to myself, shit, this is it. You know, this, this really is it. This is the rest of my life. And like all entrepreneurs, we jump out of the frying pan into the fire. We just went, all right, I'm quitting. I'm out. What are you going to do? God knows, but I'll work it out. And... I just knew I had to find something was better. And luckily, back in the 80s and 90s, and you know, I can see you're not 21, but back in the 80s and 90s, I didn't have all of these social platforms and Instagram to tell me how inadequate my life was. So it was just a gut reaction that I had to try something else. And I tried so many jobs, got fired so many times until finally I ended up inventing my own pocket, my own industry. And so uh, where did that, you got on a plane, you flew, you flew east. Where did you, where did you go? Where did you, where, where were those jobs and what did you get fired from? Well, in England, I got fired from everything from a cake sales rep, insurance, um, door-to-door insurance sales, uh, telephone rooms, truck driving, door work. I got fired from everything. But then I met a friend of mine that apparently, and I never remember this, I'd saved from getting a thumping at school. And so he was now a trainee stockbroker. And he's like, oh, I remember you. You looked after me at school. And again, never remembered the kid. Um, He may well have (laughs) even been confused. But he told me about how his bank was recruiting a lot of trainee stockbrokers to go to Hong Kong. So he's like, I owe you a favor. I'm going to get you an interview. So I borrowed my dad's suit, which was like off the shoulders by about four inch, turned up at this interview, um, and it was a group interview. There was like about 200 guys in this room. And I just thought, well, what's going to happen here? I just literally walked up to the girl at the back with her little flip chart, and I said, look, I'm not getting any of these notices. Do you have my correct address? And, of course, I knew I wasn't on there. And she went, no, I can't. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's happening again. So she's like, no, 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 sorry, sorry. Well, so she wrote my name and address down there. Two weeks later, and this sounds bollocks, but it's absolutely gospel. Two weeks later, I got my welcome packet and my flight ticket to go to Hong Kong. I landed in Hong Kong for this new apprenticeship. I landed on the Saturday, got drunk with them on the Saturday, got drunk with the boys on the Sunday, did orientation at the Shangri-La on the Monday, and I was fired on the Tuesday because they realized I was a gimp that knew nothing about finances, 
And so I'm now in a foreign country. I didn't know what to do. I had a little bit of pocket money. They let me use the, uh, the apartment uh, for three months uh, as a favor because they had brought me over and now fired me. So all the guys that I was sharing the apartment with thought I was a fake and a fraud. And I said to them, look, I was just trying to better myself, and they wouldn't have it. So I would spend all night out, go back to the apartment and sleep during the day. And then one night I got a job as a doorman at this club that I just used to get drunk at, and they needed a bit of a hand, and so I stepped up. Um, And that was it. I thought, this is my lowest point of existence the lowest ebb, and now I'm a doorman of a dodgy nightclub in Wan Chai. And I just thought, <laughs> I then thought, I should have stayed as a bricklayer. <laughs> the funny thing is, we, can, we all know that those bad moments in our life, those real dark chapters, are often when we go deep into ourselves, and they empower us. I got so much growth out of that, I got so I earned a PhD in body language and just being able to see people, you know, MBA, PhD, doctorate, whatever you want to call it. I started throwing my own parties. I started throwing, you know, private club events. I took over mansions, penna. It just blew up because I realized what people wanted. And I knew what I wanted. I wanted to be in a room full of rich people. So I would throw a private party and only only invite the rich people. And from there, I started being a party promoter to then working for the Grammys, Sir Elton John's Oscar party, the New York Fashion Week, Kentucky Derby. And I just never knew where to stop or why should we stop. Um, And I've literally worked on the biggest events in the planet for the wealthiest people in the world. And along the way, they go, oh, I really fancy, I like Guns N' Roses. And I'm like, great, I'll get you a drum lesson. Oh, I really like, you know, the rock band journey. Fine, I'll get you on stage. I really like Formula One. I'll get you a tour through the Formula One in, in Italy. So I just became, as Forbes called it, the Make-A-Wish Foundation for people with really big checkbooks. And then they called me the real-life Wizard of Oz, and it just blew up. Without realizing it, I invented the personal concierge industry. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> and. I was I was thinking when you were talking about being a doorman, though. Actually, as you were talking about being a bricklayer and that whole, you know, shit, is this yeah. my life? That that when you were standing in the rain as a doorman, did you did you think I wish I'd just been happy being yes. a bricklayer? Do you know what I mean? Because like because your 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 three three other generations of your family didn't go. I'm not doing this. They went. Uh, yeah, this is fine. I can do this till I retire. Well, there's there's a. There are some people that can, and I'm not being disrespectful, but there are some people that can settle. And entrepreneurs, we're freaks. We're the kids out of Hogwarts, you know. We're concerned that we don't fit in until the day we wake up and realize that we were never meant to. And I often, often, you, you are so accurate, I'd often in my life go, my God, I wish I'd have just been happy. I wish I'd have just settled then. Until you realize that you were never created to settle. You know, I, I remember I've had conversations in the past with, with people who've worked for me, you know, and you say, what do you, well, I go home and I have a, open a bottle of wine and I watch EastEnders and I get up and I come to work. And it's just like, oh, sometimes yeah. I just wish that would be yeah. great. Like, you know, <laughs> there's no sense of, sense of struggle. I, I, my, I, I remember being, having a conversation with my boss because after uni, I, I went and joined Marks and Spencer's and ended up in Liverpool 
and that was one of the top 10 stores back then it I mean, God knows what it turns over now, but it was ter- when I was there as a trainee, it was turning over nearly 90 million yeah. pounds a year. And, and the manager was a guy from Sunderland and he said, Dom, I'm the most successful manager Marks and Spencers has ever had. It's taken me only 16 years to get from where you are to here. And I just went, no, yeah. 16 years ago, I was starting primary school. My life's changed quite a lot. No, I'm not doing this for yep. 16 years. Yep. I'm off. I'm out of here. Yeah, we've all met people like that. I remember, I remember a pivotal moment uh, on that building site. My dad, my whole family are Irish, and um, it was raining. You know, of course it was. It was London, and I ran into the tea hut. And my my granddad, in his eighties, early eighties, was around like this, like heater. And I ran over to him, and he had his thermos flask, and he's pouring a cup of tea. And I ran over to him, and I'm like, "Granddad, Granddad, did, did you ever think you'd be doing this when you're when you're this old?" And of course, that was the kind of question that should have got a smack in the nose. Um, but what he did was more powerful than that. He never looked at me, still blowing onto the tea to cool it down before he took a sip to warm himself up. He said to me, and I remember this, I can even remember the smell of the room, loads of wet bricklayers in a little cabin. He said to me, son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. And that was it. I quit that day. In fact, I quit that, that moment. I walked out of the hut, saw my dad who was looking after us, and I said, I'm going to quit. Uh, and that was my pivotal moment because I didn't want to be here. And I remember years later, a friend of mine, Joe Polish said to me that the definition of hell is to meet to to meet the man or woman you could have been. And I, I'm very thankful through, through all of my life, I never used the fear of, of change to hold me back. I used it to propel me to take it. I took so many risks. I failed so many times, and therefore I've got educated on a million things that I'm useless at. And, and that's how I've looked at it. It's funny. I was just thinking, you know, you've been fired a load of times. I've been fired a few times too. Maybe it's a bit like walking a high rope, uh, you know, like, like being a trapeze artist, but you know there's a safety net. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you fall off and don't die, falling off's much less scary the next time. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that, but there's a thing about expectation though, because you – like you could have run some events in Hong Kong. You could have ended up with a little nice little business in Hong Kong and, you know, being comfortable. And, and you, what, like, why did you keep going? Like, why, what's the, when is enough? When is enough enough? I what? remember being a, a poor ass doorman of this club and there'd been a, I don't know what, something had happened inside the club. So I had been asked to come in and there were these four guys good-looking guys, all wearing sharp suits, all wearing nice watches. I remember recognizing one of them was a Rolex. I didn't know the other brands, but I recognized this Rolex. And they were all the same age as me. Now, I'm on the door being paid to thump people, and these guys are inside drinking it up in a booth with all the girls. And I remember this moment. This this girl went over, the, the waitress, sexy little lady, went over there, dropped the little wallet with the tab in it for him to pay up. And she went, oh, thank you very much. Have a good night. And no one paid attention to her. Now, you know, that, that happens sometimes. But I remember what caught me was one of the guys leapt up and run at her. 
And of course, like as a doorman, you kind of stand up thinking, hang on, what's going to go on here? And he taps her on the shoulder, didn't grab her arm. But I remember this. He kind of, t- he was like, say, hey, hey, I'm so sorry. We didn't see you do this. He said, thank you so much. It was a wonderful night. You really looked after us. He put the card in the wallet. And here was the thing. Never checked the invoice. Never checked the bill. And I thought to myself, my God, that guy's so rich. He doesn't even have to check the tab. He knows his credit. Now, I was at a period where I knew exactly to the penny how much was in my pocket and to the penny how much was in my bank account because I was rolling around the supermarket going, okay, loaf of bread, two twenty-nine. dollars uh, Yeah, I've got that enough. And I was playing that kind of grocery lotto, and I just saw this guy. He was polite. He was humble. He was respectful. And he had so much money that he didn't care how much. Now, let's be serious. Nightclubs are always tacking on a few extra drinks. He didn't care. And I thought to myself, I want to be him. So I started throwing the parties, not because I like people, not because I'm approachable and warm and fuzzy, but because I wanted that to be my Trojan horse to allow me to be in a room with rich people because I wanted to walk up to a rich person and go, hey, you're a billionaire, I'm not. Why? And that was it. That was the entire crux. So you say about settling. I started my parties with people that maybe had half a million dollars liquid. And then I grew to get parties where they were kind of like arguing over whose jet was the best. And then it grew up even further. And I'm dealing with people that own things like countries. And I just wanted to get into those rooms to to have conversations with people that owned major industries, major corporations, and just try and find out why are you wealthy and I'm not. And I never settled. I wanted to find the richest and rich. And I, I've worked with everyone from Elon Musk, Richard, I could name job to piss you off. But I've asked them all the same question. Where did you get your start? And this is another thing. What aggravated you to do what you do now? And that was always a question that was interesting, got some great answers. What uh, what are some of those questions and answers then? Well, I believe every entrepreneur starts because they're pissed off about something. They're working on something and they go, well, hang on a minute. Why does it have to be like this? I remember Elon Musk telling me that the idea of PayPal came from the fact that they couldn't understand why it took five days to wire money from one U.S. bank account to another U.S. bank account. You know, why should that be the case? He invented PayPal because of that. Most people invent things because they're frustrated at the way that it's currently done. And I think that as entrepreneurs, we're oysters. And it's it's aggravated oysters that make pearls. So every conduit of uh, an entrepreneur is that they do something and go, well, shit, why why am I doing it like this? And then they go and invent a better way of doing it. And then they sell that solution because that's what entrepreneurs do. We sell the solution to someone else's problem. How do you, the you know, the sort of the stepping up in, you know, half a million liquid billionaires, how did you make that step up? What is it that you do or what is it about you that says, right, I'm going to run a party for billionaires? You know, if I said tomorrow I'm going to run a party for billionaires, I'm not sure I'd know who to go and invite. Well, you'd invite billionaires. You know, no, no, it's, <laughs> and here's the thing. They're not, they're not under B in the yellow pages, though. No, but seriously, man, 
Go on the internet and Google billionaires in your region and you're going to get them. You see, the problem is so many people, they will tell you what they want to do in two seconds and then spend the next 10 minutes going, oh, but I could never, I wouldn't know where to start. Where would I get a billionaire? And they talk themselves out of it. You said earlier, do you ever think, and then you went on with your conversation, the bottom line of it is no. I spend more time doing than I do thinking. You know, a good friend of mine, Jay Abraham, says I have a, a bigger eye can than an IQ. And I worked, I worked with the Vatican, and someone asked me to do something with the Pope. Now, the first thing I did was contact people in Italy to ask if they had any connections with the Vatican. What's the point of me phoning someone in Idaho? You know, they're not going to know because they're in Idaho. So just start doing the basics. I knew that I wanted to speak to people that had made money, and more importantly, paying me was never going to be a discussion. I wanted to speak to people where they had the assets to throw the kind of events that I could put together. And, of course, the more people that are paying me, the wilder the parties could be, and these parties weren't existing. So, and I was only also only inviting rich people. So they knew they weren't going to get some jackass trying to sell them insurance or trying to sell them some kind of, you know, product or service that they didn't want. Everyone in that room was going to be hand filtered. So it was a level playing field of misfits. And they liked that. And I just, it just carried on and on. I didn't overthink. And a lot of the time I would fail. I'll give you one perfect example. I was throwing these parties, and they were getting quite regular in Southeast Asia. And uh, this guy from Hong Kong came up to me, and he said, you can't throw the parties anymore. And I said, well, well, why not? And he said, because you don't have a food and beverage license. And I'm like, what's that? And they said, if you throw a party and you're selling food and drink, and I was only selling drink, they said, you've got to have a license. You don't have a license, so you've got to stop. And I said, well, don't worry about it. And I got my checkbook out. I said, how much is it? And they went, no, no, no. This thing's going to take six to 12 months for you to get. And I said, no, that can't be the case. I've got a party next week. And he said, well, if you're going to sell um, alcohol, he said, that party's not going to happen. I'm going to close you down. He said, if you gave it away, it wouldn't matter. And I went, oh, hang on a minute. What do you mean if I gave it away? And he said, well, food and beverage is for when you're selling food and beverage. You know, if you give it away, you're not selling it. So you don't need a license. I said, fine, fucking brilliant, great. So the next party I did, I literally just increased the price by twice and all the food and drink was free of charge. I didn't need a license anymore. Never missed an event. So entrepreneurs, we look at the opportunities. We look at things differently. And that's what I did growing up. You've pulled off some amazing events. What's your, uh, what are your, what's your personal favorite Florence, um, I mentioned to you before that I had a client that wanted to get married in the Vatican by the Pope. And so I was in Rome at the time organizing that. Um, and then I get another client of mine that said that he was trying to have, he wanted a dining experience in Florence to impress his future mother-in-law and father-in-law. So what I did was I went, okay, how stupid can I do this? And we were talking about this before. I never look at What can I achieve? What can I pull off that would be cool? I go for, okay, how can I go for something so ridiculous that is laughable 
until I pull it off and you applaud it. So what I did was I went for the stupid goal first. And in Florence, if you want somewhere in Florence that is just absolutely Florence, couldn't be anywhere else, it was the museum that houses Michelangelo's David, the world's most famous statue in the planet. So I contacted them through some introductions, some very powerful introductions. They gave me the museum from 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 2 o'clock in the morning. I set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. The client turns up at 9 o'clock at night, string quartet, red carpet, having an amazing meal by a top chef with Michelangelo's David in front of him. And then I said to him, I'm going to get a local entertainer to serenade you during your pasta. Halfway through his pasta, <laughs> I brought in Andrea Bocelli to serenade them. So that's the kind of stuff that I was doing before book. And you know that you know that whatever that ticket is, that's fine. They're happy with it. Well, that. again, if you've qualified that you're dealing with a billionaire, you know, the, the, the payment. And for a start, I always would charge up front retainers. So I would always, and I would say to him, look, I got something. It's going to be spectacular, but you're going to be thinking about, you know, one, one and a half, maybe 7.50 into an evening. You okay with that? And the questions I would always get is, if I'm happy, we don't have a problem. So I would always go above and beyond what the expectations are of the client. So they were always thinking to themselves, my God, how did I get that for only one and a half million dollars? You know, so I would always kind of have that kind of thing. But by filtering the client can afford it, you haven't got that as a conversation. So it makes me wonder what, how much getting married by the Pope might cost, cost you, cost me. I'm married. I don't need to get married by the Pope, but it just, that, what, uh, is that something you can share or is it just, it's just I, more I, than, I never, it's just more, it's more than, it's more than dinner in the, it's more than dinner with Michelangelo's it's, David. It's, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody, and could you, could you pull it off again? If somebody listening says that would be perfect for me, do they get in touch with you? Or you've done it once and you're not interested in doing it again? Please do not. Please, ne- no, please forget my phone number. Um, the, the bureaucracy and red tape dealing with the Vatican, and I've dealt with the White House, uh, the, uh, the, um, the Pentagon. I've dealt with some, some bureaucracies around the world. But my God, the Vatican is the king of that. Basically, I did this for you know, 25 years. And I was the go-to guy for, for you know, I was very well known to like a few hundred people. They just happened to be billionaires in the world. And then I got, uh, I, I told you earlier, I was in a bar having a chat with a girl. She turned out to be someone big in Simon & Schuster, one of the largest publishing houses in the world. And she's like, oh, these stories, you should write a book. And I said, look, if I wrote a book on the, the people I was dealing with, I'd be dead before cocktail hour. So thank you very much, but no. Um, I did a speech at an entrepreneurial event talking about how I market, how I brand to get these kind of clients. And she got wind of that and approached me and said, look, write a book on how a bricklayer from East London is dealing with these people and how you do that, that would be more interesting. So we went down that route, releasing that book. I didn't expect it to change my life. I think I told you earlier, we didn't even have a website, but it did. So the concierge business at that point started to peter off. I stopped focusing on that and I started focusing on how to get other people, entrepreneurs to think differently, act differently, create more impact, focus on relationships as we're moving away 
from relationships and we're terrified to communicate, we teach you basically how to communicate more and how to focus on a relationship currency. So since book, I've been traveling around the world, coaching, speaking, doing all of that kind of stuff now. So if you want to get married in the Vatican, call someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, um, what's the, give us some, some tips, I guess, right? Because everybody's got certainly one of the things that I, when I'm talking to clients, uh, you know, they've got a handful of clients that are probably worth more than 50% of their revenue. They might be people that worth building great relationships with, grow your revenue, make it sticky, uh, and or find people who could also be in that sort of top echelon of clients. So what are the, some of the tips around marketing, communicating? What is it, what is it that you're teaching people? All right, so um, shallow plug, the book is called Bluefishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. There you go. That's out of the way. Amazon and all good booksellers. Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you buy it, you've just made me, I think, a dollar and 10 cents. So there you go. Um, That was worth a plug. Um, So let me give you some of the basics. A lot of people, and we can be very focused. So let's focus it on today, okay? I don't know when this podcast is coming out, and you may be hearing it from years from now. But during the COVID crisis, one thing happened. We became pissed off. We lost clarity and we became constantly confused. When's it over? When is it going to open up? When have we got a vaccine? Oh, it's opened up. Oh, no, it's closed down again. We were constantly pissed off, which allowed our tolerance level to be at an all-time low. Now, in the past, someone would start talking to you and they would massage you down a sales funnel and you'd end up buying something and you'll be like, oh, that was slick. I've ended up buying this toilet brush and I didn't really need it, but hey, the salesman was good. We're pissed off now. We don't want to look at how wealthy you are. We don't want to look at how fancy you think you are. All of this kind of, oh, I made a million dollars before I finished you know, on the crapper today. We don't want that kind of marketing anymore. You've seen it. We saw it everywhere pre-2020. Now, we want clarity, confusion, and more than anything, we want a solution. Now, there's one beautiful thing, and I'll give it to you in in an example. When you wake up in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, and you've got a stonking headache, you walk into the bathroom, you open up the cabinet, you grab out your headache tablets. When was the last time you looked at those tablets and went, nah, I don't like that packaging, Uh, that, that, that logo? Oh, God, no, I don't like that. And you put them back and try and see if there's another one where you do like the packaging. It doesn't happen, does it? Because headache tablets are there to solve a problem. If you can focus on solving a problem, you don't have to worry about a pretty website. You don't have to worry about pretty branding. Jesus Christ, look at me. I'm taking people's money, and I literally still look like the doorman and the biker because that's exactly what I am. I've never focused any effort on branding or manipulating who I am. I focus all my energy on solving your problem. And if I wake you up at 1 o'clock in the morning, if I knock on your door at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I wake your family up, the kids, the dogs barking, and you don't even have a dog, all your house is going like shit, and I'm at your doorstep, and you open up your door, you're like, fuck you want. 
But if I say to you, hey, there was, a, there was a garage down the road that was going out of business and they had a free car, here it is, I've just bought you a free car. And I know you didn't have a car and you needed a guy. I've solved a problem for you. How happy are you with me? You see, the beauty today is no matter what business you are in, stop trying to sell your product and focus on the solution that it provides to whose problem and then find them. If you want a billionaire client, identify what billionaire problems they have. With me, most of my billionaires wanted to show off. Most of my billionaires wanted to meet other billionaires. Most of my clients wanted to have these parties with rock stars, superstars, movie stars. And then they wanted bigger stories to show off at cocktail parties. That was the problem I was solving. I was giving them the stories that they wanted. With you, in your business today, in your marketing, look at your marketing messaging, look at your copy and go, hang on, am I selling my product? Or am I establishing what the problem is and how I'm the solution? That's the biggest focus that we should be doing today. That clarity so often is missing. You know, I, I was talking I was talking to somebody today and I said, look, it's the difference between push and pull. You know, if you've got a widget and you're saying, who can buy my widget and I'm going to go and push widgets on people, I think you'll be disappointed. Whereas if you say, what problem does my widget solve and who exactly does it solve it for, they'll be beating a path to your door. It's, it's, it's a different mentality. It's, it's, you know, finding a customer and going deep with them as opposed to being you know, the seller of widgets. It's transactional versus relationship. It's funny that you bring that up. If you think about today, we are having, we are having habits forced onto us. And one of those habits is we're becoming transactional. You see, it, it's nothing unusual for someone to walk into a house now and go, Alexa, turn the, turn the lights on. Alexa, put the music on. You know, picking up your phone and going, Siri, call mum. You know, Amazon, get my toilet rolls. We are now in a world where we are basing everything on transactions. And that's creeping over into our communication. Hey, I need this to be done. Do it by 7 o'clock and we're in business. The one thing that few people rarely do now is challenge the need. Ask clients. When, when a client asks you something, try this. Say to them, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you, Dominique. But why does that need to be done by four o'clock? Why do you need that done? Why do you feel that's the problem that we need to be focusing on? Challenge the question so that you can get to the core of the issue. Quite often you will find out that what they want done is to cover something else that may be temporary. Why don't we do that so the problem won't come up again? When I, I dealt with Elon Musk and he would turn around and say, before they ever looked at fixing the problem, they would identify why the problem was there in the first place. Don't fix the squeaky wheel. Try to work out why you need a wheel. That was the way that that mentality worked. That was one of the big things I learned in dealing with, with really rich people, how they actually looked at problems. It's interesting. The, the, the chain of thoughts that you've sparked in my mind is that one of the other podcast guests uh, has written a great book called The Coaching Habit. Uh, Michael Bungay Stanier, and it and it basically he says there's no there's no um, there's no secret to coaching. He he says there are seven questions to coaching, and and actually I think 
you can use exactly those seven coaching questions to sell to people. Um, but it's not really selling. It's not pushing. Basically, it's coaching your client to buy from you. You know, one of his questions is what's on your mind and what else and what's the challenge for you and what do you want and can I, how can I help? And that's, that's exactly that. It's like, you know, finding somebody there and then coaching them to the point where, you know, you can solve their problem for them or they want you to solve their problem for them. But that's questions. You know, the, bottom, the, the, most, the most vulgar, combative, aggravating world in the planet is the question why. It stops people in their tracks. People will come up to me and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I need to do this. Great. Why? Now, I will get people, and this is just a pre-warning, I will get people uh, on Instagram. I'm Steve D. Sims everywhere. Again, shallow plug there. They will, they will go on Instagram, Twitter, and they will message me, and they'll go, hey, you know, I'm in your area, or I want to get a phone call with you, and I want to discuss it. I want this. I want that. And I will respond with, sounds good, why? And then I'll get people, well, God, you sound like a dick. I thought you were helping people, or you sound like you've got an ego. And I, I've had some really violent responses from asking why. And then I'll get other people going, well, that's a good question. I wanted to discuss this that I'm building out, or I wanted to discuss how you coach, or I wanted to discuss what would be the benefit with being doing this with you. Why is a great question. And if you ask it, you actually get the real answer. How many times today do people go, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that? But what they really want to do is much deeper and much more colorful. I've had people before, and I say, never, ever give a client what they ask for. That's transactional. Give them what they lust, dream, and desire. That's really getting into the relationship. And you'll only get that by asking the questions that you were saying earlier. Well, it's funny because we we, we've taught this to some people. And, and one of the guys we taught it to a couple of years ago, I uh, met him the next week and he said, because one of the things is, is you say to the client, what do you want? And the client will give you three things that they want. Those three things are, are the reason why they won't buy your shit. And also they're, they're top of the mind and just discount them. So we say, just keep going. And he said, and, and we say, keep going and uh, t- keep going until the client is pissed off and refuses to speak to you anymore. And then it's like, we've got, we've got everything now. And he said, I got to seven, I got number 17 from him. I'm writing them down. I get 17. He said that was a one and a half million pound order. And it was so far away from the three where we, normally we would have just started a pitch. And so I love it when that happens. When What type of clients are you coaching? Um, aggravated entrepreneurs that have plateaued. So it's people that have got into a certain element of their business. Most of them are at their, their level of success. Uh, you know, they've got the car, they've got the house. They're doing all right with the influx of clients, but they want more by doing less. You see, if you had, if you had a thousand clients that were worth $1,000 to you, or you had four clients that were billionaires, you're doing less for more. So we try to find people that are trying to systematize and automate as much as they can and get rid of the stuff that they really shouldn't be doing. And as entrepreneurs, we know we're control freaks. And we sit there and we go, yeah, 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 I could teach someone to do that, but bollocks, is faster just to do it myself. That's true for that time, but if you train someone to do it, then all of a sudden you never do that again. You've now got 10 minutes in the day 
where you can be focusing on making one and a half million dollar orders. So the bottom line of it is we find out from the client what's their messaging, what's their goals, what's their aspirations. And again, these are all answers for today. As they start earning more and start doing more and start becoming more empowered, those change. But let's get the line in the sand today and then let's find out how aggravated they are with their current situation to make impactful changes to get the clients they want, to get the messaging right, to get the tonality. So many people ignore tonality in their messaging and really learn how they can impact by becoming a solution and not a glorified sale. Give us a good example then of the, some of the tonality work you've done. Well, tonality, tonality is king today. You know, like if I say to you, uh, Dominic, beer tomorrow, eight o'clock, don't be late. Now that's an order, you know, you're not happy with that. And you're going to be like, screw you, you know, but if I go, Dominic, tomorrow, eight o'clock, beer, don't be late, you know, all of a sudden it puts it into that passion has made it exciting. You're going to want to be there. Okay. So one is barking an order. One is a tremendous invite that you can't wait to be there and you won't be late. So in the messaging that we have within our website, our marketing, our copy, our news, all of these areas, look at how it's coming across and understand that what you're saying from you is irrelevant. Everything is relevant based on how the recipient is receiving your message. So pretend you're pissed off and read your newsletter. Pretend you're aggravated and read your newsletter and find out, can you possibly twist that into aggravating you further? And then you have to change it to incorporate the tonality. A good way to get a tonality more in sync is to do more videos. Instead of doing a newsletter, do a video newsletter and go, hey, I'm thrilled to be chatting with you this week because there are three things that I'm going to be doing this week that are going to help you in your business. There's all that tonality. There's all that excitement. But if you put that into just plain text, people are going to go, oh, here you go. He's got three ways to make me a millionaire. What a wanker. And they're going to hit the leak. So you have to look at today how to cut through the noise, distraction, and for the first time, aggravation that we've currently got in our life and install it with tonality, brevity, and clarity. Okay, very good. So other than not wanting to be a bricklayer, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier in your life? Do you know, you mentioned that was going to be a question, and that's a very good one. Um, There's a lot of things I know now that you want to turn around and go, oh, I wish I had known it then. But the real question there is, would you tell yourself, would you go back in time and tell yourself that information? And I'll be honest with you and say, no, I wouldn't. Because the amount of times I went broke, the amount of times I invoiced someone and ended up actually paying for that event because I'd invoiced them too little, um, all of those things gave me the empowerment and the education to know how to do it. I now know what to do. I'm now educated. If I went back and I gave myself those answers, I wouldn't be as educated as I am now, and I wouldn't therefore be able to be so stable and confident as the world around me moves like it did in COVID. Very good. And 
other than blue fishing available on Amazon. <laughs> uh, what other? That's another one. What other, book, <laughs> what other? What other books have you have had an influence on you through the years, or or maybe even books you've read recently? You think great read. Well, should recommend COVID that. was a great time to do that. I caught up on a lot of books uh, like Think and Grow Rich. It's a famous book that I've never read. So, you know, I read it, you know, it was one of, well, I've got time now. Um, uh, there's a few books that I've, I've always kind of like gone to, but there's also a style of book that I think will help people. Um, I, I love anything by Jay Abraham. Jay Abraham was the, 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 the best man to, to know how to communicate before social came along. And now that social is teaching us how to communicate so badly, all of his stuff's relevant again. So Jay Abraham, uh, there's two books that I would say that definitely should be on your shelf. Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. It's a great manipulation on how the world of media works today. And when you read it, you'll see how Trump used media uh, during his campaign. Great, great book. Also teaches you how you can use the media for your gain. The other one, Nair Eyal did a book called Hooked. It teaches us how we're being consumed and being led down rabbit holes by everything from Facebook. And as we already know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So that was a very, very good book. But then also something that I do, which I, I think a lot of people miss out on, I read two business books, and then I read one fantastical, one, one fantasy, one crime drama, one conspiracy, one Dan Brown, you know, Inferno book. I think all of the tactics and techniques, hey, you can download a PDF on that. But when you read a book that's like some kind of like imagination book, it triggers your brain to think, dream, and create. And that's really what we need to be doing more of. So two business books, one story book. That's how I rotate. And how many books do you, uh, do you get through a year, do you reckon? Not as many as I want but I probably get through one or two a month. And I know there's people out there going, well, I do one a week. Hey, bully for you. Um, but I probably will go through. I've been very slow recently because I've been working on a couple of other projects. Uh, and I'm reading uh, Jamie Mustard's The Iconist. Um, and I've got to admit, I'm nearly coming up to a month and I'm only probably about 60% through it. So that that's going to take me a month and a half. Okay, very good. Steve, uh, if we were to one tip for tomorrow, what could what is the one thing listeners could do tomorrow? Stop branding and start talking. A lot of people are too worried about how they look, how they come across. Literally pick up the phone and do yourself a favor. Pick up the phone and phone everyone in your inbox and go, hey, I got your email, but I just wondered, was there anything else I was missing from that email? And just have a conversation with them. You'll be amazed how the orders will actually change. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure having your, you and the force of nature that you are on the show <laughs> on the show this afternoon. It's brilliant. Thanks very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.